As we continue our series today, we're looking at aligning, joining Jesus in all of life. And today we're talking about our identity affects our trajectory. That each one of us has words that we speak to ourselves that formulate where our trajectory is going. These words and these stories and this narrative we tell ourselves is a combination of things that have been done to us, perceptions about ourselves, comparisons to others, and a variety of other things that come from the world around us, the media, and whatever else. And in the midst of this, we need to recognize that there's a voice going on in our head. And this voice is affecting the trajectory of our lives. David, in the Psalms, was aware of the inner voice and inner struggle in his life. He writes in Psalm 42, 5, Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? And David was able to look inside himself and say, there's something going on inside me that's not right. And so what do I need to do to get this recalibrated? So let's pause for a moment. And if you want to take out your notes, or you can do this in your mind, When I say the words, I am, speaking about yourself, what are maybe the three first words that come to mind? I am blank. For all of us, we have self-talk. We have things we say to ourselves. And what we say to ourselves affects our trajectory. The lies we believe, can change the direction of our lives. And lies are not only negative, they can be positive too. But on the negative side, here are some lies that we can say to ourselves. I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. I cannot be forgiven. I'm a bad parent. I'm a bad kid. I'll never be good enough, pretty enough, strong enough, popular enough, cool enough, rich enough. I am just not enough. Now on the other side, There might be a positive, but still untrue narrative. It might be saying, well, I am strong enough. I am cool enough. I am rich enough. I'm good enough. I can do it on my own. I'm better, prettier, faster than those around me. And both are false narratives in our life. One says, I'm not good enough. And another says, I'm better than everyone else. And I look down on others. And I put people down. So I ask you, what is it that you're telling yourself? What is the voice in your head saying? For me growing up, I was a pretty positive kid. But around the time I hit my teenage years, my brother, who was a year older than me, uh, he was shorter than me. And so he couldn't... So he couldn't take me physically anymore. He decided to verbally begin to belittle me and include my friends in on that belittling. And so for a lot of my teen years, I had this constant barrage of negative input coming into my life. And I don't blame it all on that, but I made some poor decisions along the way. And after finishing a variety of high school I basically went into a dead-end job with no idea for the future or no plan because basically, underneath the surface, I really didn't think there was a plan for me or that there was anything beyond just existing from weekend to weekend. 
And this narrative in my mind was simply get a job, earn money, and that was it. So what is the story you're telling yourself? Maybe you don't have a negative narrative like that. Maybe you have a positive narrative. And the Apostle Paul, we find in Scripture, had a very positive outlook on his life before he even encountered Christ. He was of Jewish pedigree, trained under some of the best teachers of the day. He was on the rise. He had everything going for him and was considered a success by Jewish law. And you look in the book of Philippians and here's a list of his qualifications. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for forgiveness, I obeyed the law without fault. When you talk about Jewish pedigree and success, Paul was the model of it. He had it going on. But then one day he encountered Jesus. He was actually on a mission to destroy Christians in the city of Damascus, which is in modern-day Syria. And we have some Syrian brothers and sisters who worship with us here. And you can actually go there and see where some of these sites are where Paul encountered Christ. But he encounters Christ on the road to Damascus, this light from heaven, this voice that says, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And basically Jesus was saying, as you persecute my followers, you're doing the same to me. And Paul was struck blind for three days. He went into the city of Damascus and then God sends a guy named Ananias to him who tells Paul that God has a different plan, a different purpose for his life and it is not going to be being the best at following the Jewish law. It was going to be a proclaimer of the gospel to Jews and non-Jews, to all the world. And Paul's launched out on this mission to plant churches. But before he was launched out on this mission... It was three years before he returned to Jerusalem. And I believe that he had an encounter with Jesus, but I believe it took him three years to really get his identity straightened out about who he really was in Christ. And Paul's encounter with Jesus changed his eternal destination, but three years in the desert changed his identity. When you receive Jesus, a lot of us know this, you cross from death to life, hopeless to hopeful, from sinner to saint. But the reality is that when you receive Jesus, you come with. You come with all the good, all the bad, the struggles, the victories, the defeats, the successes, the failures. You show up and that just doesn't go away. That comes along. And we need to both encounter Jesus, but we need to allow Jesus to transform the way we think in the way we identify ourselves. We love to think that in a moment of worship, that we can come in and our life is overhauled, but often it is in the hard work of daily following Jesus that he truly brings a deeper transformation into our lives. Paul was changed from a persecutor to a proclaimer of the gospel. And Jesus wants to change us from being self-promoters or self-haters to being ones who find our identity in Jesus because our identity affects our trajectory. Now, as we track with Paul, Paul is launched out and he begins to plant churches all over the Roman world. And one of the churches he plants is in a city called Ephesus. And after planting a church there, he leaves and then years later writes a letter back. And in the beginning of this letter, we find 
this incredible portion of scripture that he talks about our identity in Jesus, of who Jesus calls us. So let's take a quick look at Ephesians here. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It begins with, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Right away we see Paul's identity is found in Christ. He says, I have been chosen, not by people, not by a committee, but chosen by the will of God to be an apostle. So he has his identity firmly planted in Christ. Then he says, I'm writing to a people in Ephesus. And he calls them a holy people, a faithful people. Would you consider yourself, that word holy there in some translation is called saints. Would you consider yourself a saint? A faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Would you look at this and say, man, that's, that's who I am. Or would you consider yourselves by some other identity? Because what we identify ourselves as affects our trajectory. How many times have you heard it or heard it said, I'm nothing but a sinner saved by grace? Is that what our identity is here? A sinner saved by grace or a saint that sins at times? Because how we identify who we are changes how we look at our lives. Paul then states, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give us grace and peace. And we see the fatherhood of God for all believers. That we can call God Father. And the unmerited grace and favor of God in our lives. We can see this peace flowing from God to us and through us. And all this is based on relationship with God and the Son Jesus. And our identity will affect our trajectory. Now Paul continues on and he bursts into this spontaneous prayer. He says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united in Christ. This might not seem like a big deal, but the majority of verbs in this whole passage are in the aorist tense, which means the past perfect but presently active tense, which says that you have already been blessed and you are blessed, full stop. And that blessing is continuing through all of your life. So it's not saying that you're trying to earn the blessing of God, that you deserve the blessing of God, that somehow one day you will attain the blessing of God. It says here that you have already been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing you have in Christ Jesus. And so what are these spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus? You have been forgiven. Ephesians later says you are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. You are already there. It says that you have forgiveness. You have a restored hope, a renewed relationship with God. You have been transferred from death to life, from hell to heaven. You have been blessed with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And why do you have this? Because we belong to Christ. Because we are in Christ. It's not in yourself you get this, it is in Christ. Then it continues on that even before the world began, before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Remember that tense again. God 
loved us. Not past tense. Yes, in the past it is said, it is done. He loved us, but he continues to love us. He loved us. He chose us. We are not looking for God to love us. We're not looking for the choosing of God. He has already done this. And then it goes on to say that we are without fault in his eyes. That when he looks at us, he sees us guiltless. That's what that word means, that we have no guilt and shame in the presence of God. That word can also be translated to mean like a spot on a shirt. That if you're a messy eater, it's pretty evident that you have guilt on your shirt if you have a big spot on there. And for me, when I put on light-colored shirts, like, it just attracts spaghetti, you know, like, blueberry jam, uh, whatever. Like, it can be across the room, and I can be sitting here and go, like, how did that get on me? Literally, on Sunday mornings, if I'm wearing a light-colored shirt, I don't put it on till after breakfast. I just sit with a t-shirt at the breakfast table because it's just attracted to me and people will see that I'm a guilty, messy eater. But Jesus is saying here, it's not about guilt on a shirt, it's about guilt on your soul. But in the sight of God, he says, you are blameless. You are guilt-free. When you go before God, if you're feeling guilt, that is not from him. Because it says that we are without fault in his eyes. Our core identity is not found in sin and the struggle. Our core identity is found in Jesus. Often we focus so much on the sin and the struggle that we forget, no, 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 no. That's not our identity. Our identity is in Jesus. He is the one that calls you loved. He is the one that calls you holy. He is the one that says you are guilt-free. He is the one that we need to find our identity and because our identity affects our trajectory. Let's continue on. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. We are not only loved, holy, guilt-free, we are adopted into the family of God. In scripture, it says that all people are the creation of God and the pinnacle of his creation, but only those who receive Jesus become family. John 1.12 says, To as many as received him, to those who believed in the name of the Son of God, he gave them the right to be called children of God. So in Christ, we are called sons and daughters of the King of kings, of the Most High God. And it says here that it gave him great pleasure. And this is what he wanted to do. He didn't adopt you into his family because he felt sorry for you, because he had nothing better to do, because he was angry at you. No, 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 no. He wanted to do this and it brought him great pleasure. Jesus was excited and delighted to adopt you into his family. That's an incredible statement that he is excited about you and excited about having you in his family. I've had the privilege of watching four children be born. And I was excited and delighted to welcome those children into my family. 
I know many people who have adopted children or are in the process of adopting children, and they aren't doing it out of feeling sorry for this child. They are excited and delighted to welcome this child into their lives and say, you are mine for the rest of your life. And Jesus and God the Father is excited and delighted to invite you into his family. Let's continue. Verse 6. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured on us who belong to his dear son. Here's another incredible statement. Glorious grace. Don't miss that word glorious. Because glorious means the manifest presence of God revealed to the world. And when we say glorious grace, grace is the unmerited favor of God. That we get what we don't deserve. That we deserve hell and he gives us heaven. We deserve hopelessness and he gives us hope. We deserve to be unloved and he gives us love. We deserve to be left in our spiritual mess and he says, I'm going to come and rescue you. That is grace. Grace is not saying I bring you from negative 100 to zero. Grace is saying you have been infinitely rebellious against me and I'm going to make you infinitely righteous in my sight. It doesn't bring you to zero. It brings you all the way to the other side. And God's glorious grace is manifest in our lives. That literally when we receive that grace, people are going to look at you and say, wow, you have received the manifest presence of God's glorious grace in and through your life. And you cannot help but let that shine through you when you recognize that. I remember one time I was taking my children to the swimming pool and one of them was having a moment and so I, I, told, I told them, you're not going swimming. You're coming along for the ride, but you don't get to get in the pool, and you can just hang out poolside with me. And the child was really disappointed, and, you know, I, but they were going along, and they weren't going in the pool. But on the way out, I, I grabbed a swimsuit for that child and put it in my pocket. And so when we got to the pool, we were sitting poolside, and then I pulled out that swimsuit, and I said, you know what this is? It's not a swimsuit. It's grace. It's grace. Because you don't deserve to get in that pool. But I'm going to give you the swimsuit and you can go change and you can jump in that pool. And more than once I've had a conversation with my children and said, do you know what grace is? It's getting what you don't deserve. And I believe even as parents, we need to model that in our families. If we only model discipline but no grace, how are we going to show our children the grace of God? And I can go up to some of my children and say, what is grace? And they're like, it's getting what I don't deserve. (laughs) Be it swimming or be it something even so much worse that we deserve eternal separation from a holy living God, but he gives us grace his glorious grace, and invites us into his presence. Let's continue. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. God doesn't have a little bit of grace and kindness, like a teeny itsy bitty amount. He is rich in grace. His grace and kindness is overflowing. There are storehouses of his kindness that he's waiting to just pour out into our lives. And he doesn't just say, you know, I'm going to tell you I'm kind. I'm going to tell you I'm gracious. 
He says, I'm going to demonstrate this to you by purchasing your freedom through my blood. He redeems us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He doesn't just say, hey, I kind of think you're good. He says, no, I'm going to purchase you and I'm going to buy you back through the blood of my son and forgive all of your sins. This is where I love the old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. And finally we read in verse eight, he has showered, he showered on us his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God is so generous that we stand in a waterfall of his kindness, his wisdom, his understanding. He has poured this into our lives. And when you grab a hold of that identity, that that is who God says you are, it will change the trajectory of your life. For me, it took me years after coming back to Christ to grab a hold of this. It took me memorizing passages of scripture like this to get it in my mind, to reprogram the way I was thinking because I had, as my mom said, stinking thinking. And I needed to have my mind transformed into how Christ viewed me and not how I viewed myself. For each one of us, it's a journey. It's a process of allowing God to transform us from the inside out. So as we finish up here, I want to do a little something here. I want you to say these statements, but before each statement, I'm going to say in Jesus. So you're going to hear the words in Jesus a lot because this is not an identity we find in ourselves. It's an identity that we find in Jesus. And we need to get our minds off of ourselves and trying to figure it out within ourselves and get our minds on Jesus. So I'm going to say in Jesus, and then you're going to say the first line. Then I'm going to say in Jesus again, and you're going to say the second line. You're smart. You got it. We're going to do it. All right. So in Jesus, in Jesus, you can say it like you mean it. In Jesus, in Jesus, in Jesus, in Jesus, in Jesus. In Jesus. Amen? Amen. In Jesus. Amen. It's in him we find this. And so as we finish up, I simply have a few points for you. Align your identity with Jesus. Align yourself with the identity that's found in Jesus. Not what the world tells you, not what media tells you, not what Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever political spectrum. Align yourself with Jesus and his identity for you. And then daily speak the truth of Jesus to yourself. Maybe you need to take that sheet with you and put it on your mirror and every day you need to get up and say, in Jesus, this is who I am. I had to do that for a long time until I finally got it. I'm a slow learner. But now I get it that this is who I am in Jesus, not in myself. And it has changed the trajectory of my life. And I believe that if you align your life with Jesus and your identity with Jesus, it will change the trajectory of your life. Let's pray. Father God, you are such a good God. And I pray that you'd help each one of us to align our lives with you, Jesus. That in Jesus, 
you have given us so much. In Jesus, we are loved and holy and chosen and set apart and guilt-free and lavished with your glorious grace. We have been redeemed in Jesus. We have received kindness and grace and wisdom and understanding in Jesus. And Father, may we find our identity holy and solely in you, Jesus. Amen.